morning, everybody. Praise the Lord. All right, happy to see you all. See you all here this morning. And uh, <clears throat> over the last little while, we've been talking about the church and studying the church and looking at all the various different descriptions and images and symbols and metaphors and what have you for the church. <clears throat> and so today we're going to be focused on the church as the bride of Christ. Okay, what a concept. What a, what a symbol. What an image. You talk about rich. I, you know, I have mentioned a number of times that um, I'm not a believer in extraterrestrials. Not a big thing to me one way or another, except that when you think about who the ch what the church is and what God has done for humanity to have come have joined himself in covenant with us to such a degree that the only way that it can be symbolized or represented is to speak of the connection that we have as a bride is to her husband. It is, it is the strongest, um, deepest possible relationship that exists on planet Earth, right? It is, um, and so with all that in mind, we're going to take a look here this morning and look at the church as the bride of Christ and hopefully kind of stir us up to realize who we are, what, we, what has been given to us. You know, in, in him, the Bible says we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So here's a, a, a text that we will get back to in a little while. Let me get a, let me get a little drink here. And in the book of Revelation, we read, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. <clears throat> Let's take a minute and commit our, our time and our attention this morning to the Lord. Father God, we thank you for this place and for everybody that you've gathered here this morning. Thank you. You've got, uh, everyone is here with purpose in your mind. You've led us to be gathered here and brought us all together. And Lord, I just pray that this word will have that kind of an impact, that it will, it, that it will stir us in the same way um, entering into a betrothal stirs the heart of a bride in our world. And we see how, how all-encompassing, how completely consuming it is for a young woman who learns that she is now about to be married and all the preparation that goes into it and all of the joy and all of the excitement and everything, all of that is meant to be, meant, meant to be the experience that we have. All of it is representative of all that it means to now have, be brought, to have been brought into this incredible identity that we, have, we are actually destined to be seated on the throne together, to rule together with you. Everything that you have, we are, we are joint heirs with all of it, and we will be together with you forever. In whatever you got in mind to do with the rest of this cosmos, whatever, whatever plan you have, we're going to be on board with that whole thing. So I thank you today. I pray that that will just really resonate and stir our hearts today and give us a greater vision of what the church is and who we are in you. Uh, so Lord God, we just pray, take over here this morning. Holy Spirit, have your way. Teach us, lead us, direct us, correct us, whatever we need today. And uh, may Jesus be honored and glorified. And it's in him, his name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. All right. <clears throat> Now, the Bible uses, as you know, quite a number of, sim of symbols or figures of speech or word pictures to help us to get a handle on spiritual truths, spiritual truths that would probably take a whole lot of explanation if there wasn't some convenient picture or symbol that can be offered to kind of give us some, uh, some clues as to, uh, as to what it means and how it functions and how it performs. There are a lot of similes. You remember the similes from your... Or maybe you don't, I don't know. Maybe, or maybe you never knew what a simile was, I don't know. <clears throat> but uh, probably if we dig back deep enough, you'll remember that a simile is a comparison using the word like or as, right? How many remember that? You blow off all the old cobwebs from wherever. A comparison which uses the term like or as. For instance, in the first Psalm, the Bible says, blessed is a man, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree. That's a simile. He will be like a tree that brings, um, planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit 
in season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. But that image, that symbol of a tree is what God wants us to think about. That's what it will be like for a person who places their attention, who allows the word of God to become their meditation, okay? The thing that they go, their go-to, all right? There's so many things in this world to think about, Right? Tons of things to think about. Your job, your family, your responsibilities, all the cares and stuff that's, that's part of your everyday life. But then there comes time in life when I can think about what I want to think about. And he says, blessed is the man who meditates uh, day and night in the, in the word of God. He will be like a tree. When uh, Paul writes to the people of Thessalonica, um, again, noting similes, when Paul writes to the people of Thessalonica, he's talking about the return of the Lord. And he uses a symbol there. He uses a simile to express it to us. He says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief, right? Just like a thief in the night. So there are things that that, that symbol connotes or describes or um, offers to us just based out of the symbol itself that will help us to understand that the, lo- the Lord's coming will be kind of secret. It will be something that we are, th- that will just happen at a time that we might not expect it. It, uh, it will be sudden. And so, um, so he uses that simile. There, uh, throughout Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is teaching on, um, all the, on the parables of the kingdom of God. And he says, <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is hidden in the field. Okay, so... Again, another, sim, uh, another simile, um, when we read about um, the angel that when Mary and, and the, the women who go to the tomb, the first one's at the tomb, and they see an angel and says, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. So all these different images are, are sent to be able to describe certain things. Jesus says to, uh, to his followers, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and yet harmless as doves. So, and that one even contains not only a simile, but it also contains a metaphor as well. And metaphors, of course, are <clears throat> you know, something where, where there's a comparison denoting one kind of object or an idea that's used in place of another to suggest a likeness so, or, or a similarity. Um, so when Jesus is teaching in the uh, 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. There's a truth buried in that, right? If we think about, okay, what's, what's beneath all that? Jesus obviously isn't saying that he's a vine, literally, nor is he saying that we are branches, literally, but he's saying something about what? The connection. That unless the connection, he uses the word, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it'll be done for you. The whole idea is our, our drawing our life from the, uh, from the vine, right? We are the branches, but our real life comes from his life, which we draw from our connection with him. So I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus uses lots of metaphors to help us to understand spiritual concepts. Uh, I am the light of the world, okay? I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Over and over again, Jesus uses this figure of speech. I, he says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. What does that mean? Well, it means that as we actually receive, as, as we consume Jesus and his presence through the Spirit, as we actually attach ourselves and, and, and um, partake of him as we would partake of food, right, with that same sense of significance and urgency and importance, as we partake of him, he says, I'm the bread of life. He that believes in me will, uh, will never hunger and never thirst. Um, in the uh, Old Testament, we've got David saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Another one, okay? Uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 64, <clears throat> we read, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. That's a metaphor. That's, and, and again, what is this supposed to be teaching us? Well, it's supposed to be teaching us that our lives are to be molded by his power, under his direction, by his guidance, for his purpose, if the, the, the like, you know, it, it's almost ass tongue in cheek. He says, does the potter, does the piece of pottery ever say to the potter, hey, what'd you do making me like, what do you, why'd you make me like this, right? It doesn't work that way. The piece of pottery just becomes whatever the potter has designed to make it. And so when they're writing, when they're um, identifying this particular aspect of their relationship with God, he says, you are our father. We are the clay 
and you are our potter. All of us are a work of your hand. Jesus speaks to the church in the fifth chapter of Matthew, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. So we get all of these different symbols and metaphors that are used throughout. So we've talked, we've we've brought a, a number of them up in the course of time as we've gone through this study. We've certainly talked about the body of Christ, um, which has, which is certainly a metaphor all by itself and teaches us a whole bunch of things. What does the body teach me about? Well, it talks about, obviously, we're all familiar with the body. We all understand the body has lots of different members and parts, and they when they function together and they work together, then the body is um, <clears throat> functioning well and is uh, doing what it's supposed to do. But if one part isn't working, all the rest of the Um, body is suffering to some degree because one part is not efficiently doing its part. And the whole idea is that we as the church are, although we have different gifts, different ability, different different talent, skills, what have you, um, we are all part of that same united effort that is grounded and centered in the Lord Jesus. And then all of us have a job. All of us have a function, unless you're just going to be some kind of like a dead appendage, which you don't want to be. Right? You want to figure out, like, where can, I, where can I get on board? How can I be involved in this whole thing? How can I use what God has given me to be a part? I, I would just love to be able to inspire that. That's really what's behind this entire uh, preaching uh, series, that to, to inspire this idea that if there was that, if, if these metaphors that are given to us, let's say the church as a family, okay, what's that metaphor supposed to be all about? Well, it teaches us, you know, we, we apply the things that we understand about family. It teaches us respect. It teaches us family likeness. There should be a family resemblance. If God is my father and Jesus is my brother, there should be some of that in me, right? And, and so all of these things have, have different aspects of learning for us, the body, I should, I should be functioning somewhere. I should be doing whatever it is that God has called me to do. If, if the church ever got this, I'm telling you, if, if the church universal ever got a handle on this, and, and let me say this as well, because we really do have a lot of functioning people in this church. You know that? We have a lot of people who are functioning in a whole variety of different ministries and areas of service, and I really want to commend the church for that, because sometimes when I do this, I'll go back later on, I'll think about the message that I preached and thought, yeah, it's just like scolding people all the time, you know, taking everybody to task, you know, for being lazy and, you know, all of that. But that is really not this church. This church is really a very active church, and um, many, many, many of you are actually involved in service. So what's the deal with the rest of you? But that, hey, this is, I'm only doing my job, right? <laughs> anyway, but all of these things, the, 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 uh, the fact that we are the family of God, okay? Um, the fact that we are the body of Christ, um, different members having different functions, but all working together and cognizant, working together harmoniously, cognizant of each part's difficulties. But of all these many varied similes and metaphors that we read about in Scripture, that are given to us to, uh, to speak to us about uh, spiritual truth, perhaps none is more amazing than this identification that the Bible offers to, to us, to the church, um, as to, uh, uh, in terms of our identification as the bride of Christ. Just think of the implications, right? It means that we will be at the right hand forever and ever. So, I don't, I, I, again, I don't think there are any extraterrestrials now, but I think there'll be some. I think there will be civilizations and projects that God is going to start. Hey, Steve, I want you to get over to that, that planet over there on the Phenomet Cluster because uh, we're going to set up shop over there, and I, I want you to keep an eye on that whole project for a little while. Okay, yes, Lord, boom, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm there, right? And, 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 and I think this is why God is building this body it's not just so that everybody can kind of stay in heaven and we can all sing kumbaya together as we sit around the throne and play some harps and walk on clouds and all of that. No, it is that this is going to be a dynamic operation. This is going to be, like right now, think of it. God is, God is solving the problem that needs to be solved in the universe so that the universe can then be free to move forward and to receive all of his creative activities. Right now, there's been a rebellion. 
this is kind of phase one. And in phase one, there's been like a great rebellion. It happened first in the angelic realm and the celestial realm. Then it came right down here. You read all about it in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, actually, right? And Satan comes in and immediately he lures and snares Adam and Eve right into this whole rebellion. And we're living in the midst of all of this. And, and, and what God has done is he... Through Christ, Jesus has exposed this and made it clear as to what this is all about to urge us to get out of that, to get out of that rebellious, independent mindset and to come and rejoin him in the kingdom of God. And so this whole, this whole phase is God putting down the only thing that could be uh, an impediment to the on, ongoing success of everything that he wants to do. In the, when, I believe that when, when the, the plan to um, create humanity was first announced, I believe that it inspired resentment and bitterness in the heart of Satan, who at the time was the king of the hill. He was at the top of the stack. And then this other plane came forward, and I don't think he liked the idea. I don't, I don't think he liked the idea that Man was going to be placed on planet Earth and take over his place, and he felt like that was usurpation of his function and of his, of his, of his purpose. And I, and I think, so then that's what brought him into this place where um, ultimately, he, you know, he, he became filled with his own sense of his, his self-importance. And so it, start, it, was, it was the first fissure, the first disruption in the plan that God had made, but it has to be worked out. That's why Jesus came into this world, because Scripture says in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 3, for this reason the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's phase number one. That had to be dealt with. Okay, that's universal, that's, uh, that's worldwide. But now that has been dealt with because Satan has been exposed as a fraud, as a cheat, as a liar. And everything that he would like to, you know, when he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, now the, the vigilant person, the wise person, the biblically informed person can actually know how the game is played and we can actually play the game successfully and we can be aware of the devices that the devil uses, which is exactly what Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the devil's devices, but we get hip, we get turned on, we become aware of how the game is being played, and we also become aware as to how you win. And you win just simply through devotion, steadfast devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. You wanna win in life? Maybe over this side. Anybody over on this side wanna win in life? Right? Because let's, let's face it. There are people who win in this life and there are people who lose and lose bad. You can lose really bad in this life and your life can, be, can become a nightmare, right? It, it happens every day to tons of people and it's heartbreaking because it doesn't have to be that way. But just simply by, our, by gaining an understanding of who God is and who I now am as part of him and, and what it is that he expects from me in terms of my allegiance to all of this sets me up to be able to succeed. Even in that uh, psalm we... Uh, um, I was quoting before, Psalm 1, right? He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water um, that brings forth his fruit in his season. Um, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. I like that. Whatsoever he does will prosper. That's like whatsoever you do when you are the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful, when you deliberately choose to reject that kind of a lifestyle, but instead you become the person whose concentrated effort is to understand and grow and meditate on. It's not a matter of, you know, like, like sitting in a sweat lodge somewhere. Um, it's, it's a matter of allowing the mind to be continuously influenced by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God, which then conditions our mind for success. Because success has little to do with what goes on down here. You can make a ton of money, and you're at the end of the road, what will the Lord say about your achievements or accomplishments or your trophies or whatever? That's what it's going to be all about. What, what have we done as, um, in order to Use this gift of faith that we have been given. Oh, I got to get on my message here. I'm... Anyway, that's not bad though, right? We can get, I, I can get away with some of that. Anyway, 
So, um, so, so the most amazing of all of these metaphors certainly is this idea of us as the bride of Christ. And as I said last week, it probably doesn't hit men quite as hard as it hits women because we don't share that, you know, I'm not, never been a bride, I'm not likely to become a bride anytime soon. And it's, so it's just not part of the psychology of most men, it's just kind of a foreign thing. You know, when, when, if, if men are looking forward to, any, to anything, it's the honeymoon much more than that actual event of the uh, marriage. Can I get a witness on that? Okay, good. There's a couple of honest people out there. But anyway, last, when we ended this message um, last week, I, I brought a couple of verses of Scripture to bear. One is found, the first is found in 2 Corinthians 11. And again, these are references that point us in the direction of, um, of, of God's ultimate plan and purpose for who we are, for us. So he writes to the people in Corinth, and he says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. See, there are a lot of problems in this church in Corinth, okay? And he was worried that they were getting distracted and that they were somehow losing the, the, the most important thing. That happens so easily. The most important thing is exactly what he gets to, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, right? If there's anything that a, that a, 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 a man who is about to be uh, married to his bride wants there to be between them, it is a sincere and pure devotion, right? He doesn't want to run around in the meantime until the wedding actually happens. No, he wants a sincere and pure devotion. And so that's what Paul is writing to encourage. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So you can see that from, Paul, from Paul's point of view, he was presenting these people that were now coming to Christ. He was seeing them as this bride figure um, who is now to be prepared for the, the, the Lord when he returns. Then we uh, looked at... Um, Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, there is all this wonderful practical teaching about marriage. Simple things, but easily applicable to marriage, wonderful guidance. And, and it, it, it really serves to be a bit of a primer or a, a help to really understand. He talks about husbands loving their wives and, and uh, wives respecting their husbands. And kind of this is the, uh, the basis for what it is that he's going to share. But he makes a really amazing statement at the end of all of it. It reads like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he adds, he tags this on, and it changes the entire significance of this statement. In other words, up to this point, good advice, some good helpful advice as to how to make your marriage work, what kind of attitude is proper in in a, a husband and in a wife. But then he says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all of this teaching on marriage, really he's saying this really, the real application for this, yeah, it'll apply, it'll apply in your life and you certainly can put it into play and it will bear some good fruit when a husband and a wife respond to each other in a way that's consistent with this, uh, with this instruction. But he says, really, all of this is all, the only reason there is any such thing as marriage, the only uh, it, it, was all, it all serves to be a symbol or a representation of the thing that God is ultimately going to bring to pass. This is the greatest thing that will ever happen. Again, it's why, it's why I don't think that there's anything else going on out there, because when this thing gets going, when this thing gets fixed, okay, when we come out of this world and we're done with this world and we're gathered together with the Lord, we are going to be ready for action. 
prepared and ready to go. Okay, that's what we're going to see this morning in Revelation chapter 19, where they, we're, we're introduced, we're told that the marriage supper of the Lamb has happened, and now the bride is ready to roll. Okay, and back they, oh, that's going to be you and me. That's going to be us. That's going to be, the, that's going to be infinitely more real than the stuff that's going on in your life right now with its troubles, with its challenges, with its heartaches, all this stuff is going to pass. That's going to be forever. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Right? Are you ready, ready to check out of here? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so what I thought was interesting as I got busy studying this concept and digging into sermons and listening to sermons and reading commentaries and going online and reading other people's reflections, it became very apparent quickly that there is a lot of strong opinion and there is considerable controversy that surrounds this whole idea of the bride of Christ, okay? Um, some people, based upon the scriptures that we've just read, what still remains them there, uh, up there, some people are adamant the church is definitely the bride of Christ. And then five pages or 45 minutes of a sermon or whatever it may happen to be to prove that point. Then there are other people. It, it, what you can do if, you're, if you want to see something interesting is type in the search bar in Google, like, the church is the bride of Christ. Okay, you'll get all the, all the people who love all who are in favor of this idea of the church being the bride. But then if you, if you turn it around and say the church is not the bride of Christ, oh, then you're going to get a whole another uh, group of people who will tell you, oh, no, the church is definitely not. Definitely not. Can, no way the church can be the, the bride of Christ, which doesn't help you a whole lot when you're trying to prepare a message and you'd like to just say something that's like straightforward and easy and something you can receive. And all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of this whole controversy of, well, is the church Israel? Is it the New Testament church? Is it, is it some elite group, special group out of like some special forces group that's part of the church that, uh, that the Lord Jesus is building? You know, there are a lot of people that say that it, it is Israel. You know, in, if, if you recall last week when we were uh, looking at the, the book of Hosea and that, uh, that amazing story about how God says to him, go take yourself, go and marry a prostitute. Now, Hosea is a, uh, he's a priest. And so for God to say to him, I got a good idea. Go find yourself a, good, a nice prostitute and marry her, right? Now you would think, huh? Is that really what this, and that's what he does. And then in the first chapter, there's, she, has, she bears him children. And as she's bearing him children, God is giving them names. So the first son comes out and God says, call that guy Jezreel. Okay, Jezreel in Hebrew means to scatter because he's, he is basically putting, it on, putting Israel on notice. I am going to scatter you people, and you will be cast forth. And of course, this has been the, the history of the Jewish people, certainly in any time from, let's say, 598 B.C. all the way up to now, the Jewish people have just been a scattered people until 1948 when they were again given their, home, uh, their homeland again by U.N. Charter, which is a miracle, right? which is something that no one would have ever thought would have ever come to pass. But anyway, the first kid is called Jezreel. And then she, she gets pregnant again. She, after she weans uh, Jezreel, then she gets pregnant again. And when the baby is born, God says, I got a good name for that guy. Call that, uh, no, that, I, think it's a, I think it's a female. Uh, call that little one, not my people. Aren't you glad that God didn't tell your mother to name you that? You know? <laughs> uh, funny joke just ran through my mind, but... Uh, might not be a church joke, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so, and then she has a third child, and the third child is, is named No Mercy. And so there in like four or five verses, God has basically said to the people of Israel, I am not going to have mercy on you. You are not my people. I am separating from you, and I'm going to scatter you all over the face of the earth, right? Not the kind of news that you want to hear. And then... But what's really amazing is that in the very next verse, right after all of this, again, God's compassionate nature, his loving nature, his faithful nature, his steadfast nature um, kicks in and he speaks immediately. Do I have that here? Yeah. And, uh, and, he, and he begins once again to extend covenant love because he calls Israel in a number of different places, his wife, his bride, that comes up a number of times. So right after all that, he says, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called 
children of the living God. So God relents. God says, all right, all right, I'll, I'll take you back. And even in this, the whole story of Hosea is the story of this woman that he marries. And then after she has some children, then she goes back to her old profession. And she's out there and she's doing what, what she's always done. She's a prostitute at that point. Her life becomes so bad that she, at some point, she's just simply up on the slave block. And he and then is encouraged by God, go out and get her. Bring her back. He says, I'll give her the, 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 the valley of Achor for, the door, for a door of hope. And Achor means trouble. And God is saying, I, I, see, I know she's in a world of trouble, but the compassionate heart of God still wants to bring her back because of God's steadfast, faithful covenant love that once he has made that, once you, once you or I have come into the covenant, faithful covenant, the Old Testament has a word for it, chesed, the chesed of God, the steadfast, faithful covenant love of God. Once we're into that, once we have come into that, man, you're secure because God is love. And God is a gracious God, a wonderful thing. So anyway, um, the, the, this is one of the reasons why I've, there's just no time, let's say, to go through all the reasons why some people think it's Israel, some people think it's the church, some people this and that, some people think it's a portion of the redeemed. But then, as if that was not enough to give us a few things to think about and ponder and question and wonder about, then we come into this. So here's the book of Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, these are the true words of God. So here in Revelation chapter 19, we are actually allowed a peek, a sneak peek into the, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is the ultimate moment that, has, that everything has been directed toward. Okay, this is, the, this is the time when the, the bride that has carefully been prepared now has made herself ready, Scripture says, and she is then presented to Christ Jesus. We are then presented to Christ Jesus to be his eternal partner, his eternal consort. And then whatever he's got going on, going down the road, we will be a part of all of that. So um, once this happens, all right, Christ Jesus now has been joined together with his faithful bride, and together we ride forth in victory. We come back to this earth to establish God's kingdom. Jesus is pictured seated on a white horse. We are following right behind the armies of the Lord. It's even, I think we did I actually go through that? Yes, okay. And this is, the, this is what it is said of, of us. It says, in the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. So it's a reference back to, the, to what immediately came before that. We're following him on white, white horse, on white horses. These go forth together to finish off those who have opposed God. They capture the beast. They capture the false prophet, the two of uh, what, what I'm What I'm driving at and what I think Revelation 19 is driving at is that this is when the project will ultimately reach its completion. It won't be done until we are on board to be part of it. And then we will return, we will return to earth with the Lord Jesus, and then that will be the final put down of all of this rebellion and all of the opposition to God. That's something to look forward to. Amen. And then that's when everything is, um, is going to uh, start going good. So then that brings us to this statement. So we've, we've just read that the uh, marriage supper happens in Revelation 19. Then we get to Revelation 21 and we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their, as their God. And then, as, as, and so now, now we get a whole nother identity. This is not Israel. This is not the church. This is a city. 
And this city, um, actually, just shortly, we'll look at this verse. This kind of goes, this companion verse right along with it. It says, then came one of the seven angels, this is Revelation 21 again, who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay, so this ought to give us a pretty good clue as to this, um, this figure, the bride of Christ. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Okay, so how do we put all these pieces together? Here we have the Old Testament Israel, and uh, so many would say that's definitely where the bride is. New Testament church, many was asked where the bride is. And then we come up to this picture, and it turns out that it's a city. What does this, what can this possibly mean? Well, if, you, if you'll recall, a number of weeks ago, we talked about this city of New Jerusalem. And I told you that it's, if, if you take the numbers uh, the, of the measurements, because it, it's measured right there, and, and then trans, uh, kind of, uh, what do they call that, uh, I only do it 60 times a week. Conversion factors. If you take the conversion factor and you, uh, and you do the conversion from either stadia or furlongs or other things that we have no idea what, they're actual, what it actually is and turn it into feet, feet and inches and yards and miles and things that we can relate to, the thing turns out to be 1,500 miles cubic. In other words, it is meant to be spectacular. It is meant to be something that is almost unimaginably spectacular, right? A city that is 1,500 miles cubic, so it would take up half of the United States of America. Go out to the Mississippi River in Florida to, to Maine, it would, it, this giant city, and it'll be that tall. And, and so the, the point is that this city kind of embodies everything. Because what is a city without people, right? Surely Jesus isn't going to be marrying brick and mortar. That can't be the point. But the city really is identified with its people. This happens often in scripture. If you think of a city like Sodom and Gomorrah, or two cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. I feel like Joe Biden, you know. Uh, get that off me. <laughs> a city like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what is, Sodom and Gomorrah was a couple of cities that were in the area uh, today, which is the, the Dead Sea. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, obviously the cities are associated with licentiousness and sexuality, immor immorality, um, sexuality that is prohibited or, um, by God. And, but the, it isn't the city that's doing that. It's the people in the city, and the city itself is condemned, and then the city itself is destroyed because the people itself within it are wicked and, uh, and are unrepentant about that. So the city, if you, if you think of another city, would be something like Babylon. Okay, Babylon in, as, as a city is mentioned in Scripture over and over, numerous times. And every time that it is mentioned, it stands for this kind of proud, arrogant grouping of humanity that thumb their nose to God and decide that we can do it on our own. We don't need you. That's what Babylon represents in Scripture. So to try to put all of this together, this city, this holy city of New Jerusalem is, is really, it's, it's real, I believe, it's literally real, but it is also symbolic of the place where this bride is going to live, and this bride, I believe, is going to be all of the redeemed people forever, everybody who has, who has come to become part of the, the family of God, the, the, uh, the, the body of Christ, everybody will, and, and this, this is the city where we will then live where we will, as, as immortals, we will have, in other words, as people who have already died and now are alive to God forever and have returned with Jesus to put down the rebellion of his adversaries, we'll come back with that. We, this will be the place where we will live. This will be the city of our habitation, and it is really going to be something special. Okay, so it's all of this. It is the fact that it has to do with all, all of these various different aspects of our relationship with God. But this thing is typified as being like, like the ultimate thing. Nothing, nothing more extraordinary um, could really be imagined. So the bride of Christ is the holy city of New Jerusalem. Now, that's, that's, that makes sense because in the Old Testament, people were encouraged to look for a new city, uh, whose builder and maker is God. Notice how that's phrased in Hebrews chapter 11. 
It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was, um, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, <clears throat> whose designer and builder is God. A little later on in that same chapter, we come across this. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things plainly declare that they seek a homeland. And if... Um, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared a city for them. So this whole city is kind of part and parcel with the, with the community, with the family, with the body, with this whole um, with this whole work that God is building with this whole thing that God is creating. And, and the Old Testament people were looking for that city. It was typified in, in Abram himself. Then the church is encouraged to look forward to a dwelling place. Jesus says in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So every Christian is promised a dwelling place, right? Don't let your heart be troubled. In my Father's house, there are many. One, one um, King James, I think, even uses the word mansions. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. No, most modern translations don't use that. There are many dwelling places. There are many rooms. But the whole idea that there is a place that Jesus is now preparing... I think this is probably it, this, this new Jerusalem, which then we will inhabit as part of his, it'll be our house. Cool idea. Okay, and then finally, every, um, every believer is promised a city. Here's, the, here's a statement from Re Revelation chapter 3 from the Philadelphia church. It says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name um, <clears throat> from God, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all of these images are here to teach us important things about our relationship to God. In terms of the family, the importance of honor and respect and deference and obedience and the idea of having a family resemblance to, to Christ and to the Father. Okay, the body uh, speaks of the functionality of each of us and all of us doing our part to be able to contribute. But this metaphor has a whole other level of, of, uh, of, of implications for us. It certainly speaks to us of love. Okay, the fact that we are being called the bride of Christ absolutely speaks to us about the fact that we are loved. Okay, you, no one would use a metaphor like this if love and anticipation and faithfulness and all of those things that exist between lovers who are then about to um, embrace one another in a lifetime covenant of marriage, right? All of those things are part of this whole thing, so we are loved. It certainly speaks to us of anticipation. It speaks to us of joy, of the joy of, the, of a wedding that is to be forthcoming. It, it speaks to us of preparation, of intimacy. All kinds of concepts are derived out of this. And, and that is probably the one thing we'll, that I, I feel to leave you with this morning is this idea of, again, last week I kind of joked about it, but we were talking about this whole process of preparation that brides get into once the question has been popped and once the wedding has been fixed and the date's going to happen, it's like, okay, stand aside because we're Everything is going to be shaken until we get this whole project figured out, right? And in the same way, that should be the same attitude that characterizes us now, that we are preparing now for the return of the Lord Jesus. Scripture says, everybody who has this hope in themselves purifies themselves even as he is pure.
right? So it is on us that in light, as I was thinking of, of the verse in Peter, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, right? He's talking about how this whole planet will melt with fervent heat. And then he goes on to say, seeing that all these things will be dissolved, what sort of persons should we be? with all godliness and in all holiness and in all uprightness, right? That our lives need to be tweaked constantly, that there's constantly a, a, a preparation that's going on in us that is wanting, our, wanting to be prepared for the Lord when he comes. You know that whole passage of the five wise and five foolish virgins, right? And the bridegroom is, uh, is away and they go out, but some of them forgot to take their, and put any oil in their lamp. And so they're out and they're waiting. All of a sudden, the, the, uh, the, the the call goes out, the bridegroom is here, and the ones that don't have any oil in their lamp, and of course, the, what does that speak of? Like, having what you need, getting yourself ready, being prepared, like digging in. The oil is the pre, it's kind of like tip, typological of the Holy Spirit, and having that kind of intimate, personal connection with the Holy Spirit, that's the oil that they had in their vessels. But some didn't have any oil. In other words, their relationship was, um, they were dry. They, they just didn't have anything, and so they missed out on the, uh, when the bridegroom came. And that's our function now in this world, is to prepare ourselves so that everything that we're thinking about, it doesn't mean you quit your job or you, you do anything different. It just means that everything that's happening was, um, in life is to be viewed through this prism, is to be seen through this this particular screen. Even we, we were studying in the men's uh, Bible study not too long ago, the book of Romans, and we got to chapter five, and it says something really interesting. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, um, or therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, through whom also we have access uh, into, uh, into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Did it make sense of all that? Yeah, seeing that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom we also have access into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And what he's saying is like, okay, God has brought us in, graciously furnished us the place to be. We now have peace with God. God is not angry at you. If you are a believer, God is that there's no need for God to be angry anymore about us. And not that he was. I'm I'm not trying to paint a false picture, but just simply to say that we have been welcomed in, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access into this grace, into this favor in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so we are looking forward to this, this experience that we are going to have to actually be in the presence of God and see his unbelievable, magnificent glory and to know that and to abide in that for ourselves. But he goes on to say, but not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces patience and patience produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. And so he says, yes, and we have on one hand, we've got this long range uh, anticipation. We're going to see the glory of God, but it's working right now. That's the point. That we also have, we also glory in our tribulations, knowing that all of these things are producing in us character and patience and endurance, and and those things are preparing us to be the eternal consort of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's that's what time it is on God's calendar. Okay, that's what's going on right now. That is the that is the primary work. And so that 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 should get filtered into everything that's going on in our lives and realize, okay, when I'm going through difficult times or things, all right, God, you're working on me. You're you're beating me up a little bit, but I know it's all for my good. Because Romans 8:28 says so, right? All thing God works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Amen. That's where, that's how, that's how it works. That's how you win. You know that? That's how you win. God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. Amen. Thank you, brother. So as we close this morning, let's just, let's just plug that little nugget in there and just know that God loves you. He's working on you. He's preparing you. He wants you to get ready. You're going to be his bride. He wants you to be functioning, firing on all eight cylinders. He wants you to be dangerous. 
to the demonic entities that rule this world. And we are, okay? We are. We're, we're tearing down strongholds. We are breaking barriers. We are breaking the, 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 the stronghold of sin. Good things are happening right here in this, in this church and in this fellowship. And just watching what was going on on that video with the Operation Christmas Child, we're part of that too, right? We're bearing fruit all over the place because we are able, because we, because we have been instructed and guided and directed by the word of God. So our lives are not meaningless. Our lives are fruitful. And there's just more and more and more and more coming. Hallelujah. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this, this identity, this vision of who it is that we will be. Your eternal bride. This whole picture of what the where we'll live, this city that is level after level after level after level of gold and precious stones and beautifulness, beauty everywhere, incomprehensible grandeur and glory. All of this is what is in our immediate future. And so we do, we say to you, we say, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm ready to go, I hope that you are. Because in, at the very end of the Bible, the, the, we, we read these words, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And he that is a thirst, let him come and drink without money and without price. Everything is inviting you and I. Have you responded to that invitation? Have you signed up? Right? Have you put your name on the bottom line? See, I'm in. I, this, is, this is who I am and this is my identity. I'm part of this church. I'm part of the bride. And I'm looking forward to the things that are yet to come. If you're not and you want to find out how that happens, uh, please come up and talk to me afterwards or talk to Jewel or any of the elders here because it's the most important decision that will ever be made in this life. When you go, when you go to heaven, the one question that will matter will be, what did you do with Jesus? How did you respond to the incredible sacrifice that my son gave on your behalf? And that will determine whether or not we are part of the big picture or we will be on the ash heap of history. So thank you, Lord God, for welcoming us in, for giving us a home, for giving us identity, for giving us a future and a, and a hope that, will, that can never fade away that will only get greater and more grand and more glorious as time goes along. Thank you for this time, and thank you for what you're doing in this church, oh God. You know, would you do something now as we close? Would you kind of just reach, get, get where somebody else is, or if you're like in a little group, would you pray for each other? Would you pray that, that you know, what God is doing? Pray for the elders, you can pray for me, you can pray for somebody as we close this ceremony, that God will just continue to let grace just overtake the work that we're doing, that God's provision will, over, will overtake in every way. I'm so, I'm, I am thrilled, honestly, about what God is doing and how he's building this whole thing and the kind of, kind of foundation that he's laid here and the, and the quality, I believe, of the work that, that has been established. And now God just has more and more opportunity to build on this thing and to, to make this the most significant thing that's going on in Morris County, Sussex County, or Passaic County. 